to the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. I'm Jeremiah Jenny, along with my co-host David Moser. David, we're finally out of threat level midnight in Beijing and back to risk level three, which means no one's actually really sure what it means because people are still stopping and taking my temperature everywhere I go. How are things in the uh, south central part of the United States? Uh, well, the usual chaos and disaster here. Uh, I'm not sure what level we're at, but it's something on, I think the CDC uh, characterizes it as a shitstorm. Is that an official uh, I term? That, yes, that's the official name. Uh, I think uh, the, when I get out, and I seldom do get out, uh, it seems like virtually everyone's wearing face masks. Which, uh, which means at least there's an appropriate level of, of fear <laughs> here, uh, which is a good thing. I think it's something we've lacked for a little while. We're going to talk today about education in China, and both you and I have worked with students who have come from the U.S. and from other countries to China. And right now, where China is gradually reopening, one of the tricky things about planning ahead is what will be the when will the restrictions be lifted and will they be restrict and will these restrictions be lifted uh, for which countries and of course you know with the US still in the middle of you know a crisis situation it's hard to imagine China opening its doors to uh, gaggles of American students coming to study here anytime in the near future yeah exactly this is a this turns out to be an enormous problem uh, I guess we should mention just as a, a timing aspect that uh, we're, we're doing this podcast on July 21st and on July uh, I think it was 11th or, or yeah I can't remember exactly the few days ago anyway the the Trump administration as people will remo- uh, re- be reminded, uh, set up a plan to uh, to rescind all to overseas study visas for students in the United States if they were not in actual classroom situations for the fall. Um, he reversed that decision on July 13th, I re- remember, va- bowing to lawsuits from several institutions in 20 states and, you know, stopped uh, this plan to, uh, to strip college students of their visas uh, at the worst possible moment, at the moment of a pandemic. And the loss of the of just these international students alone could have cost millions and was going to cost millions of dollars in tuition and jeopardize the you know ability of U.S. companies to hire these skilled workers when they graduated. So um, let's just use that as a jumping off point uh, because we are talking about the university systems here. Uh, for me, the upshot of all this was that uh, America's soft power has taken a huge hit, obviously, with the with Corona nineteen, with COVID nineteen. Sorry, Trump's election and this and this massive national dysfunctionality we've been we've been experiencing here, and I'm sure we can expect a further downturns in our soft power. But right now, this is a sort of a a manifestation of the enormous soft power of U.S. universities. For the time being, we have something like three hundred and seventy thousand Chinese students attending U.S. universities. Uh, in this year, last year, and this year, uh, and as well as a large number of elite colleges in other countries, Oxford, Cambridge, and so forth. So, uh, Jeremiah, what, uh, you know, we've hung around uh, Chinese college students long enough, and we've been in this world. What, what can you kind of spell out? What's the soft power attraction for these U.S. universities? Well, I think bringing up soft power is so important because one of the, I think something that a lot of Americans who don't 
spend a great deal of time abroad, uh, they don't realize just how important soft power is, that American soft power is probably our greatest national asset far greater than all of the military uh, power we can bring to bear around the world. And it has been for a long time. And it's something that also in the last few years we've rather cavalierly uh, given away. And the decline in our soft power presence around the world, especially in the last you know three or four years, has been, to me anyway, one of the most discouraging things I've seen in the last, you know, I've seen recently. And, and that's saying something given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and possibly, you know, some kind of semi-cold war with China. But, you know, the way this kind of, the way that we shoot ourselves, and I say we, the, you know, the Americans shoot ourselves in the foot, you know, things like this visa kerfluffle, it alienates, you know, as you mentioned, hundreds of thousands of students. It puts them in an, a terrible situation, especially because, and again, every country's different, but the students who are going to come back to China, China doesn't want them. And so they're they're really kind of stuck. And yeah, that's right. And this would be a really good opportunity for the US to say, "Listen, this is a terrible situation. We're going to give you we're going to help you out." And it's part and I, I should say this is part of a, a longer trend. You know, the the fact that it's so difficult now for uh, recent college graduates from other countries to then transition into working in the U.S. in terms of getting the right kind of visas. And there was a time, you know, we don't have to look that far back, where international students, students from other countries who traveled to the U.S., studied either, either as undergraduates or graduate students, and then went on to, to jobs in all kinds of fields, uh, was an important part of building America's you know, scientific, educational, uh, business, technological infrastructure, if you will. And just to give that away, uh, to, to churn up a couple of votes from, you know, xenophobic morons is, is just, it's one I mean, of, of the many things that I struggle with each morning when I watch the news. You know, this is, this is the one thing that I think really hits home for me. But you're, you're, I mean, but you're also looking at the other way. What's the attraction? You know, I think there is still this idea that America, it, it is the, still there that American universities offer a world class education, and and offer an education that, while there are limits to this and there are problems, generally encourages a, a form of academic and intellectual engagement that just isn't the case in many other places. So I think that's part of it. I also think too that there is, you know, I, I still, I think this is definitely waning. Uh, I think that the uh, the prestige, the sort of the job, the the help in the job market that an overseas degree confers upon, say, a, a graduate from an international university who returns here to China. I don't know that's the same as it was ten years ago, fifteen years ago, but I, I do know that there are still there is still a powerful push and pull for students who have the means, who have the grades to try to get an education abroad. And I think they do it for a variety of reasons. And I think people still are to some extent uh, proud of displaying that they went to school overseas. You know, one of the things I notice uh, when I go jogging along the old city moat here in Beijing is, you know, there's quite a few people who go jogging at the same time often are wearing the sweatshirts of universities uh, back in the U.S. And I keep, and they're of the, 
let's just say they're they're of the uh, you know they're upwardly mobile urban Chinese, the the type of people who you know often do have gone overseas for if not for as undergraduate for graduate school. I think one other factor too, and this is less about undergraduates and more about graduate students. You know, I I think it's still the case that for and we'll talk about this a little bit later. But for a lot of research, particularly in the social sciences and the humanities, studying abroad, studying overseas, whether it's the United States or Australia, Great Britain, Europe, you know, Japan, for somebody who, for a researcher who is really truly interested in the process of, of intellectual inquiry, the opportunities to do that are so much better once you leave the PRC. And you know that's one reason why so much great research on China happens by Chinese academics who are not living in China. They're based in universities in the US or in Europe. Brings up the question, since many of China's top students still are attracted to an education outside of China, what about Chinese universities? And David, you've worked in many of the, you've worked with many universities here in China and you know what is what are Chinese universities doing to try to reverse this trend? Uh, I mean, where they, what are they doing to build the soft power attraction of world class universities in the PRC? Uh, yeah, well, that's that's true. That's they do see this as uh, the next step that they need to take in their soft power, and they want uh, they very much want to create uh, higher education institutions that rival you know Harvard and Yale. And the short answer is. They're, they're attempting to do it through money. They're spending money. They're awash in funds right now. And so they're trying to buy this university soft power. Um, and you see it all over the place. If you've been to Peking University, I used to hang out there in the 80s, and, it, and it's a totally different place now. They've spent billions and billions just on infrastructure, uh, billions of new facilities, fr- uh, frontline laboratories, infrastructure. Uh, just a year before last, I think I read Tsinghua University had annual expenditures of something like 15 billion renminbi, which is something like four or five billion purchasing power parity, making it uh, on a par with, with some place like MIT. And Peking University is a, was a little bit behind that, had a little bit less, but was on a par in terms of investment uh, within U.S. institutions like Caltech. So they're spending the, uh, the same amounts of money or more or so as we are on our institutes of uh, higher learning, especially the technical ones and the technical, technological aspect. Um, the the, the uh, Ministry of Culture is now offering huge salaries to try to attack foreign talents, foreign professors, mostly in the hard sciences. Uh, and I know this because I was uh, teachers were reaching out to me to translate uh, lots of uh, new new contracts that they were sending out, uh, offering salaries of you know a million renminbi, like one hundred fifty thousand U.S. dollars, which is pretty good, you know, a, a good uh, salaried tenured professor can make that in the United States, but that's getting really competitive, trying to attract experts and professors sort of in mid-career as part of the part of the contractual obligation is they have to, any future research they, they do has to be uh, under the masthead of Tsinghua University or Beidar, whatever institution that they're at. Universities are also trying to strengthen the link between graduation and jobs 
to sort of get the students uh, into a high-tech career and get them out in the world to sort of give more prestige to the universities. Uh, there's this also this Project 985, which um, you probably have heard about, 985, uh, because it was, I guess, 1998 in May 4th that Jiang Zemin initiated this project to, to promote the development and the reputation, really, of the higher Chinese higher education system um, and build world-class you know, world universities for the 21st century. New, new research centers, improving facilities, holding international conferences, attracting world-renowned faculty, and so on and so forth. And I, I don't know much about this project. That it, It's still going on, so I know that funds are still being channeled through it. They're also reaching out to the international students. They, 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 they do have, uh, one thing they do have is a lot of international students other than the U.S. students that don't seem, that, that are actually dwindling uh, over the past few years, as you and I well know, having spent time in overseas study abroad. But they are inching up to more than half a million foreign students, but mostly from, um, from Africa, from Midi Middle East, from the Belt and Road countries. In fact, there are Belt and Road scholarships taking advantage of this uh, economic, you know, synergy, a cooperation with countries like Pakistan, and finding ways to to build that into the higher education and, and their um, their funding for 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 uh, stipends and and uh, tuition. And they're also, I guess, they're still <laughs> they're still pouring a lot of money into Confucius Institutes around the world. It's, uh, and still, there are hundreds of these in the United States and at various colleges and institutions. And the success of these, success of these, I think, we know are very much in question. With many universities opting out of the relationship right now due to due, due to issues of academic freedom, which, by the way, we'll talk about later. That's one of the topics we want to talk about later. So, are they getting any bang for their buck or return for their renminbi? on all of this spending? Uh, well, in a sense, they are. Um, I, I just mentioned the, the, the numbers of foreign students in, enrolling. Uh, in terms of ranking, and I don't know if rankings really mean that much, but if you look at the usual rankings of, of, of top uni uh, of global universities, Peking University and Tsinghua are currently ranked as 23rd and 24th. With uh, Or is it the other way around? Let's see. I can't remember. Peking University is, yeah, is, Peking University is, is one notch above... No, there's one notch below Tsinghua, that's right. And in terms of world university rankings, they're, they're not in the top, they're, they're the only two Chinese schools that are in the top 50. So China's not doing too well in terms of top ranking schools, but those two schools are doing pretty well. In terms of, in terms of world reputation rankings, uh, Beida was 17th, and in terms of Asia university rankings, it was second. So in terms of Asia, Beida and Tsinghua are doing very, very well. In terms of uh, educational exchanges, as I, as I mentioned, there's the China Scholarship Council is giving lots of money to student aid. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, foreign students, mostly from South Korea, the, uh, Thailand, Pakistan, and India, and other places. But these are foreign students. They're, they're, for, they're presence there, but they don't necessarily add to the subsequent prestige of the university because they're usually in uh, technical fields uh, and, and don't go, necessarily go on to be winning uh, Nobel Prizes. Jeremiah, you and I know well that this that the, the, the university system in China is relatively new. Uh, building a world-class university takes several generations. And the Chinese university system was only formed after the fall of the Qing, really, 
uh, and was hindered for generations because of the war and the Second World War and the Cultural Revolution and so on, so on and so forth. So maybe Chinese universities can be forgiven for not being up in the ra- world rankings because they just haven't, ha- haven't had the century or two of uh, of of the, of the necessarily time to build up and uh, get f- uh, distinguished faculty and the whole university system. But don't forget that that much of the success of the U.S. universities, and you kind of mentioned this a, a minute ago, was the huge brain drain that they profited from, from from during and after World War II. The number of physicists and philosophers who fled Nazi Germany and then in other periods as well. And, and then later on, Asian students uh, flocking to the United States. So in order to succeed in building up the universities, China is going to have to make them equally attractive, as you just pointed out so well, that American universities are, and create a brain drain in the opposite direction where you have lots of bright foreign talent you know, trying to get into Chinese universities. But the problem is they haven't succeeded in making their universities attractive to world-class experts. And if anything, the brain drain is, is still in the direction of the United States as, as the recent kerfuffle with 370,000 students stranded in, in the U.S. Uh, can attest to. You mentioned this problem, Jeremiah, and I would like you to expand it on it a little bit um, because you have a lot of familiarity with the Chinese universities. Um, I, my feeling is that they're going to be successful in perhaps attracting experts in the technical fields like AI and genomics because I've got the money for that. And these are two fields that uh, are sort of uh, independent of political considerations. But history, humanities, do you, do you think they can really create a world-class university without something like academic freedom? Well, you know, for a long time, I, I've, I felt that it was much easier to create those kind of academic collaborations, whether between universities or in the same university, uh, linking Western academics and Chinese academics in the sciences rather than the humanities. And I think a big part of that was that, and I'm sure there is a scientist out there who would, who would perhaps disagree with me, but in the sciences, you know, you're starting with the same basic fundamental assumptions. A chemical formula or a physics equation put on a whiteboard you know, is understood in much the same way by scientists from Beijing as they are from Boston. But when we're talking about the humanities, when we're talking about history, when we talk about social sciences, some of the starting points, the fundamental assumptions of these fields are so wildly different. And I think that prevents, or it doesn't prevent, I think that's probably too harsh, but it makes it more difficult to have that kind of collaborative research, especially when that collaborative research is happening inside the PRC. And you ask the question, I mean, can you create a world-class university without academic freedom. And I think there's been a lot of pushback on those rankings, you know, 23, 24 uh, for Beida and Tsinghua in the world rankings. And yet, you know, these are universities in which academic freedom is rapidly shrinking. I don't think it's, I don't think it is too much of an exaggeration to say that the intellectual climate on those campuses was far more open 15 years ago than it is today. We don't have to look, you know, too far back in the news to see an example of this. You know, like Professor Xu Zhangren, who was, you know, a, a granted a fair, fairly outspoken critic of Xi Jinping, but, you know, was detained he was released just, a, just a, I think, a couple a week or so ago, and just recently has lost all of his positions at the university. And I, I understand that, 
you know, these rankings look at a, a, a wide range of criteria. But if you have faculty who are being fired or being intimidated by either the students or the administration or whomever, and who can't express themselves through their research or through their teachings, I don't. I wonder a little bit about what that says about the people who are doing these rankings. That's that's a good point. We, by the way, we talked about this a little bit in a previous podcast about are we still welcome here? That 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 academia in in China, especially in the universities, when we well when I first came here anyway, were kind of a safe space. It it, it was a place where you know a professor could could pretty much talk frankly to students as long as it, it wasn't published or made made public. That the that, uh, the classroom, the university classroom, was a place where you could have something like free speech, and free airing of ideas. And now, as you say, it's it's really gone the opposite direction. It's it's worse than it's than it's ever been, even since since I came here in the eighties. And I think one of the there's been a disturbing trend too, where the expectations of censorship that have long been a place have long had a place on campuses here in China, although those those spaces have expanded and, and shrunk over the years, uh, is now being in some ways exported to the rest of the world. That we see examples in Australia, in the United States, of either you know, organized groups or just you know, students or faculty or even the consulates of China getting involved in the universities, trying to pressure them about the kind of things that are being talked about, researched, taught, spoken of in their classes there. And, you know, that's a that's certainly a very worrying trend. And you brought up the Confucius Institutes, which on the face of it are, shouldn't be a problem. I mean, you know, this is a, you know, there was a need for funding for Chinese language instruction, for Chinese, for teaching Chinese, for Chinese subjects at the universities. The Confucius Institutes provided that. But even at the time, there was a lot of people who were thinking, where what's going to happen when that same university say invites a speaker who is a critic of the Chinese government or invites somebody who say wants to speak out on issues related to Tibet are they going to be able to restrain themselves and I, I, I talked to some of the professors who were part of the first wave of you know representatives sent abroad for the Confucius Institutes and, and in private they were you know, they were talking about how they, they found this to be a really good opportunity for outreach and they weren't as concerned about the political implications but of course things have changed since the first Confucius Institute was opened and performative uh, political posturing has become an important stepping stone in job security and in getting ahead here. Um, we see this in the foreign ministry, and we're starting to see this on representatives of Chinese institutions outside of China. And of course, you know that has raised the question of the independence of the Confucius Institutes and a subsequent wave of closures of these institutes uh, around the world. You know, but let's let's kind of return to China for a moment, talk a bit about a little bit more about how these issues of academic freedom are working here. And I, I'm thinking about some of these new hybrid initiatives. You know, these global university campuses, we think of Duke um, and Kunshan, NYU, Shanghai, but also things like the Schwarzman College at Tsinghua University. And David, you, you, you worked at the uh, sort of Peking University's counterpart to the Schwarzman College, the Yanjing Academy. 
And I thought maybe you could give us a, a bit of an overall picture of how these programs are faring in an era where in other parts of these campuses, academic freedom seems to be uh, in retreat. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very complicated issue. And uh, most of these, uh, these, these sort of joint, joint ventures, you could say, uh, between, you know, uh, the Duke Kunshan and NYU Shanghai, and then also the, the, the sort of Rhodes Scholar style programs like the Schwarzman and the Anjing Academy are started in the, with the best of intentions. And the idea is to get Chinese and foreigners in the same room talking about the same issues and having a sort of a free academic discussion about what to do about China and how to study China. And the problem is that I think the, the, original, the original intention was to create a, a space here where you could have uh, create positive energy. And, and I know what this is. This is a sort of a loaded term, but this is the kind of thing they want. They want to, to set up a, a situation where both foreigners and Chinese can kind of work together to solve China's problems. The problem is that in order to so- solve China's problems, you have to actually be honest about what those problems are. <laughs> and this is where you run into some problems. The, the, the most notable one probably that most people remember was uh, the recent uh, events in, in Hong Kong in, the, in la- last year with the riots and, and the protests that uh, the New York University Shanghai campus, which was its, which is a joint uh, venture between East China Normal University and New York University in, in uh, has a student body of about 1,300 students, about half of which are Chinese nationals and the other half are, are international students. During the protests in Hong Kong, you know, NYU Shanghai was criticized in op-eds and in the Washington Post for self-censoring their curriculum because students were reporting that they were not allowed to speak out against the crackdown. They weren't allowed to uh, voice their opinion in class about the situation in Hong Kong. The Washington Post published this article in, in, in which it sort of said that, that the school's neutrality was couldn't be maintained with the Chinese Communist Party looming over the school, sort of picturing it like a sort of a, you know, a specter or an anaconda in the chandelier, as Perry Link calls it. So th- this was a very serious problem and a, a bit of a shock to some of the people who've been watching this uh, this joint venture, this, this joint sort of attempt and, and waiting to see what would happen. We've had, you know, similar problems at Schwartzman, at Yanjing. When I was there, you know, we told our students, you know, don't self-censor. But of course, there is always a little bit of pressure there, at least in the framing of the research you might do or in writing up the abstract. But the, but the upshot of all of this is I think that these are, these are great programs that uh, I think should be maintained and that they, sh- they should be continued. But uh, I mean, the problem is that the the administration, the institutions that are being that are help that are partially funding these and, and supporting them on the Chinese campuses, they've got to realize that they have to give a little bit. They can't have it both ways. They can't have their cake and eat it too. They can't have it. They can't have an institution that attracts interesting foreign talent that sees it a, as a competition to the Rhodes Scholarship. But at the same time, you know, restrict academic freedom. That's something that's, that students, uh, that, that's the biggest turnoff for, for someone in academia is to uh, not have free reign in, in what the ideas that they want to explore. I don't know what the, for, the future of these programs are going to be, but unless there can be a little bit of give and take on the Chinese side, I think they're going to face even more problems in the future. So, Jeremiah, I just see they finally rescheduled the Gaokao uh, recently uh, in, in China. The Gaokao, oh my God, that's such a huge topic. How, what do you think the implications are of the Gaokao and, and all these issues of uh, you know, the quality of Chinese ed, uh, university education? 
in, in a country where many forms of debate are often limited, debate over the Gaokao is one that is very lively online in China. People, uh, parents, students, everybody has an opinion on the Gaokao. And, and it's hard to distill like one take on it because everybody has a, a pretty strong feeling um, on these exams, you know, the, the way to think about them. For those who are unfamiliar with the Gaokao, you know, David, back in the Paleolithic era when you and I took the SATs, you know, I remember at least my mom was like, you know, you studied hard, you took the practice test, you had a good breakfast, you know, whatever happens, we're proud of you, just do your best. And I, I think back to my Chinese friends whose parents, you know, it was a very similar situation when they took their Gaokao. It was, you know, you had a good breakfast, you studied hard, you know, whatever happens, we're proud of you. But if you screw this up, your mother's dying in poverty. And so there's a lot of pressure with these, <laughs> right. with these exams. And it, 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 it's, it's true even, even today. And, and it's a lot of the criticism of, the, of these exams, the university entrance exams, and now, you know, obviously the high school entrance exams too, is about well, what are we testing, and is this kind of teaching for the test? Is this is this creating well-rounded students who then can compete in a, a global economy? And at least my take on it, and, and David, I'm sure you have some feelings on this too, is that a lot of folks I talk to say it's totally unfair and it's a horrible, horrible system. Except we can't think of anything that would work to replace it because if we went to an open admissions process like you have in the United States, speaking to me, the, the feeling is the potential for all kinds of shenanigans, bribery, favoritism would be just overwhelming. And of course, the U.S. isn't immune from this either. You know, Felicity Huffman, you know, I, I a Chinese friend who said the problem with Felicity Huffman was clearly she didn't pay enough. I mean, that's <laughs> right. not the problem with that, but it does kind of re reveal the mentality here. And so I think the Gaokao kind of has its place. And, and it, I, it, while everyone complains about it, it seems hard trying to find something that could replace it. Or I should say it's unfair, but it's, you know, everyone says, well, at least it's as unfair as possible for as many people as possible. Yeah, that's the right way to look at it. Uh, it's uh, it's not the the best situation, but it's the only kind of system you could set up that that could is tenable. I think last year I, there was something like nine million people sitting for the for the Gaokao test. There's 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 no way you can imagine nine million students that you could you could assess them uh, in, in in a way that a Western university or Western uh, education system would be impossible. But this brings up this question of the Gaokao that you know that people level this criticism of the Chinese education system that it's sort of, uh, it's test, it's oriented toward the test and it sort of stifles or doesn't promote creativity. When I first came to China in the 80s and the early 90s, I was with the University of Michigan uh, working with a, a sort of a, a joint research project with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And they were actually studying this very issue. They were kind of studying uh, how the Chinese education and the Asian education in general uh, worked, and especially with uh, regards to issues such as creativity. I think you remember when Steve Jobs died, uh, whenever he died, 10 years ago or whatever, the Chinese internet, they very much mourned his passing. He was sort of a folk hero in China and asked, when will we have a Chinese Steve Jobs? And that's that was a sort of a uh, culmination of a long sort of national discussion about 
about fostering creativity in the educational system. The, a book that I found very influential uh, in 1989 was a Harvard researcher named Howard Gardner, who wrote a book called Two Open Minds, Chinese Clues to the Dilemma of Contemporary Education. And he, his, his take on Chinese education, and he did spend some time in China researching it, was that Chinese education stressed uh, skill mastery. The, the things that Chinese, the, the curriculum that Chinese students learned, they were, they were expected to grasp it and master it rather than just get the basic gist of it and then move on to the next topic. And the example he gave was a difference in teaching a young child how to use a key to open a door. And he said, uh, in the Chinese context, you give the child the key, you put it in the child's hand, uh, you hold her hand as you push the key into the lock, and you turn the key, again, moving her hand, showing her how it's done, and you do that a few times. And with the, with the adult's help, the child learns to open the door, and everyone applauds, and the child gets a sense of accomplishment because she's learned this new skill. He claims that in the American context, we throw the key to the kid and say, here, you know, figure out how to open the door. And the kid struggles for a while and try, gets, gets the key upside down, and she can't figure out quite how to do it. But eventually, she sort of stumbles her way into f putting it in the lock and opening the door. There's applause, and she's learned how to open a door. But the point he makes is that, that in, the, in the American case, the child's not only learned the skill set feature of opening a door with a key, but the child has also learned uh, general problem solving. In other words, how to go, how to approach solving a, a new problem, and it was a very influential thesis, and, and the book sold very well. And I, there, I think there is a point to it, and I think that 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 if if there's anything that could be one of the strengths and perhaps weaknesses of the Chinese system, is is in that difference is that they do create students who who get very very good at what they do, and especially in the 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 uh, you know the math and, the, and sciences. And I, I, I should, I have to admit, I, I, I was really amazed with taking part in this this study because the the person in charge was Harold Stevenson, who's gone now, but he was a University of Michigan psychology department education expert, along with James Stigler, in in collaborating with Cass in these the studies in Beijing, Taipei, and Tokyo, and also Chicago. And this was back in the 1990s, right? Yeah, this is in the late 80s and early 90s. And what was interesting about it, and I think that book is still in print, it's called The Learning Gap. The upshot of that is that they, they went to these schools in Tokyo, Beijing, Taipei, and they found that, that the math and science courses that the students were taking were anything but rote learning. They were anything but just merely skill-based. That the teachers were usually uh, math you know, experts or at least math majors. Uh, unlike in, my, in the American system, where a lot of my math teachers, as I recall growing up, were like gym coaches and things like that. But that in the classroom setting, they actually stressed creative, creativity and asking students to find different solutions to different problems. I can't go into the detail, but the, 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 the point is that this, this learning of mathematics was actually uh, anything but the stereotype of, of Chinese learning. And I, I, I think that this is something that, that we have to come to grips with, that there is a difference in the, in, the, in the education systems and there's a difference in the orientation of the way his teaching is done. But I think that far from, instead of, of foreign experts coming in and telling Chinese people what's wrong with their educational system, uh, that we ought to actually be learning something from them because obviously based upon the, uh, 
the performance of, of young students. They're, they're outperforming us in, in most academic areas. There's something that we can uh, learn from them, I think. Well, you know, I remember my own experiences working with Chinese teachers as a student in various disciplines. And, you know, the, the takeaways I had was, one, my feelings and self-esteem were not part of their equation. And I had a teacher who was a pronunciation coach uh, I, I worked with when I was learning Chinese way back. And he, he told me, and, and I've, heard this, I've heard this saying used in other contexts, but I, I, I totally understood it the way this, this teacher told me. He said, along the lines of, you Americans, you practice until you get it right. I want you to practice it until you cannot get it wrong. And oh, yeah. That's different. That, yeah. Yeah. And I, I've heard a version of that in other contexts as well. But it did occur to me that a lot of students here in various disciplines or in, in various subjects is an expectation of mastery, as you were saying, that I don't know if necessarily, um, at least in my own experience, I had brought with me in my educational toolbox. I, your anecdote reminds me of another one. Uh, and I think this may be a good place to kind of start drawing to a close here. But... There's also this issue of, of creativity, which we're still talking about, that it, that it requires a, a willingness to break the mold, to sort of be bold and, and, and make a mistake, perhaps, or, or at least do something in an unorthodox way. And this was brought home to me when I was uh, teaching a class that had both Beijing students in, in it, uh, or students learning in Beijing and Americans. And the notion of YOLO came up, Y-O-L-O, -O, YOLO. And one of the Americans explained that YOLO stood for you only live once. And that this was a sort of a mantra that the young people had, you know, YOLO, you only live once. And the Chinese, one of the Chinese students in the class said, said oh, yes, you only live once. That is so true. You only live once, so you should be very careful, very cautious. Never do anything that's too risky because you only live once. And everyone laughed. The Americans, of course, laughed because he had gotten exactly the opposite uh, message from from the from the statement. But but in but in fact, you know, there is something to. Uh, to uh, this notion that that when you do something, when you learn a discipline, that you should be spray, pay strict attention to the regimen and to the tradition and to how to time tested uh, ways of doing things because you can build on those later on. Well, I think since both of us have have worked uh, so long in education in China um, and international education in China, I think it's a subject we may be returning to again. Uh, later on. Well, David, thanks uh, thanks for calling in. I figure eventually we'll do one of these podcasts face-to-face -face someday, but uh, until then. Yeah, I hope that we can, not, not that I miss your face so much, but yeah, it would be great to do it in the same room. Uh, thanks to our listeners for putting up with this, the kind of audio problems that we sometimes have, and also for continuing to support the podcast. We know there are lots of podcasts out there, so we appreciate you tuning into ours and we're available on all platforms where podcasts are distributed and especially i always thank uh, the la review of books the china channel which has been featuring barbarian barbarians at the gate and uh, jeremiah and i are eminently googleable and we're on twitter so if you have any suggestion suggestions for any topics or if you have a topic you'd like to come on and talk to us about let us know we'd love to explore something with you 
Until next time, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Barbarian to the Gate. We'll talk to you soon.